Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com you are now listening to postmortem with mick garris where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director writer and producer now here's your host mick garris from Nice Guy Productions, world headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. What's your favorite monster? Dracula, Frankenstein, zombies, Norman Bates, Freddy Krueger, ghosts, serial killers? One of the most venerable creatures of cinematic horror remains the werewolf. Though most of the rules that lycanthropes follow were invented by the great screenwriter Kurt Siodmak in the screenplay for Universal's 1941 classic, The Wolfman, furry lupine shapeshifters have been around in legend for centuries. It's long been a part of European folklore, running alongside the beliefs in witches and witchcraft. In the second century BC, the Greek geographer Pausanias related the story of King Liaison of Arcadia, who was transformed into a wolf because he had sacrificed a child in the altar of Zeus Lysias. There were actually werewolf trials similar to the witch trials as early as the 15th century, though the legends reached their peak in the 18th century before becoming a staple of early chapbooks and later popular fiction before becoming a staple of the modern horror film. And the legend of the werewolf still has plenty of life. Recently, Werewolves Within made its mark as a festival and fan favorite. But 2021 marks the 40th anniversary of a true high watermark year in werewolf movies. 1981 marked the release of three lycanthropic classics within weeks of each other. The Howling, An American Werewolf in London, and Wolfen. The directors of the first two, Joe Dante and John Landis, were also guests on the second episode of this podcast and returned to celebrate 40 years of the reigning champions of shape-shifting man or woman beasts after this. Available now from Dread, Howling Village. From the visionary director of The Grudge and The Grudge 2 comes Howling Village where, after her brother goes missing, a young psychologist visits an infamous haunted and cursed location known as, what else, Howling Village, to investigate his disappearance and uncover her family's dark history. Howling Village will be available on demand everywhere and on Blu-ray September 14th. 
Also coming soon to dread, Bad Candy. On Halloween night in New Salem, radio DJs Chili Billy, Corey Taylor, and Paul, Zach Galligan, tell a twisted anthology of terrifying local myths that lead to a grim end for small-town residents. So if you love Slipknot, Gremlins, and horror, this is the film for you. Bad Candy is coming out in theaters and on demand September 14th and on Blu-ray October 10th. So, John, you... Yeah? (laughs) You know, it was the same year that Full Moon High, The Wolfen... There was another, Joe. What was it? Full Moon High, The Wolfen... Uh, Which one was Larry Collins? That was Full Moon High, yeah. The Wolf. Uh, Was Teen Wolf the same? Teen Wolf. Teen Wolf, there you go. So there's five of them. Five werewolf movies in one year. And there hadn't been one... Since The Boy Who Cried Werewolf. With Kerwin Matthews. Right, and that was in... 73, I think? 73 or 74, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and The Beast Must Must Die. That was the the Hammer film, where they used real wolves, which is always a mistake. And werewolves of Washington. That was, I think, a little later. The a little later. Werewolf of Washington. Werewolf of Washington. He just passed away, that guy, Milton, Milton uh, Moses Ginsburg. It's actually not a It's a very interesting movie, actually. Yeah. Well, John, you wrote An American Werewolf in London when you were 19 years old. And it took you quite a while to get that going after Animal House, after uh, uh, the Blues Brothers, and you got to make what you wanted to make, but it took a while. Tell me how it came together. Well, it's a script that got me a lot of work as a writer, but no one would ever make it because they thought it was too wacky. And, (laughs) you know, when a movie's, ask Joe, when a movie, ask Mick, when a movie is 40 (laughs) years old, you find yourself telling the same story again. (laughs) Over and over. Well, in any case, um, it was either the standard response I got was either it was too scary to be funny or it was too funny to be scary. And they say, what is it? I'd say it's a horror movie, it's a monster movie. They go, what's not a comedy? And I said, no, it's not. And they would say, well, then why is it so funny? And it was like, it, it was very much Abbott Costello routine for years and years and years and years. And after Blues Brothers, I owed a picture to Universal. But Ned Tannen, who I actually like, so it's bad that I'm bad-mouthing him now, but he's dead, so there you go. But Ned, who was head of production at Universal, when I made Animal House and the Blues Brothers. And then ironically, Ned was set a production at Paramount when I made Coming to America. Um, But in any case, there was the big story of that year of the Blues Brothers. There were five films in production, Heaven's Gate, Apocalypse Now, um, Star Trek, 1941, and there was one other that I'll think of, but five Just movies. What giant what? movies? Gi- well, all cost more than twenty-four million dollars. Twenty-four million dollars was the magic number because that's what Cleopatra cost, 
and <laughs> almost bankrupted Fox. That's why they had to sell the back lot. But at least now we have Century City. Um, but in any case, the the story that was helped by the studios, and at, you know what respect I have for the uh, media, but was that these Hollywood directors, not the studios, but the directors were out of control. And in one or two of those five, that might have been true. <laughs> but you can't call Robert Wise a director out of control, you know. That's for sure. Um, and ironically, of those five films, four of them made a great deal of money and were profitable. But nonetheless, the story was directors out of control. And Ned Tannen, to protect himself, uh, when a reporter at this press conference asked, what's happening in Chicago? They're spending millions of dollars. He said, well, the budget of that movie is 12, I think 12 or 14. He said some number that he made up. That had this nothing, is on Blues Brothers. Blues Brothers had nothing to do with the budget of the film. And I remember when the trades came out with this quote, you know, in it, I was standing with Bob Weiss, the producer, and Bob said, look, and he showed me the variety headline that it was all about the Blues Brothers out of control. And uh, he said, I think we've spent that much already. You know, it was like, what are they talking about? In any case, so I had a rough time. And the Blues Brothers, I just had a rough time in general with the release of, not making it really, but with the release because of racism of the exhibitors, the theater owners who refused to book it. And at that time, a major studio- Because of all the black performers. Exactly. They all seem to think- that no white people would go see it, which, you know, it's John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd and Carrie Fisher, Princess Leia. <laughs> yeah. we're, we're trying anything. Henry Gibson laughed. You know? But um, what was so interesting was that they were wrong and it was so frustrating. There were a lot of theaters in the South that didn't book it at all. And we ended up playing quote unquote urban uh, theaters, I mean, the story I've told countless times, and I will continue to tell because I hope he's rotting in hell, was Lou Wasserman, who I like, called me to his office. And Lou was the chairman of MCA Universal and probably the most important figure in the industry. And being called to his office, it was like, uh-oh, it was like going to see the principal. So I go to see Lou, and he says, hi, John, sit. And I never did sit. I stood this whole meeting. Have you met Ted Mann? And I look, and there's this good-looking, tall guy in his 50s, I guess, the American flag pal, the, the pin in his lapel. He was the head of Reagan's Kitchen Cabinet. But in any case, I said, oh, no, hello, Mr. Mann. And what I knew about Ted Mann was he ran and owned Ted Mann Theaters, which owned the theaters in Westwood and Grauman's Chinese. I mean, they, they were the most important theater chain in the West. Um, and I also knew he was married to Rhonda Fleming. <laughs> That's not important. The, the end result of this meeting was Lou said to Mr. Mann, tell John what you told me. 
Now, those who grew up in Los Angeles will remember that in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, the most important theaters in terms of numbers and prestige were all in Westwood Village. Right. And Ted Mann, who owned those theaters, said, I'm not booking your picture into Westwood. Kind of took me aback. And I said, why, why is that? And he said, because I don't want blacks in Westwood. Yeah, exactly. I was for once in my life speechless. <laughs> I was like, what? Say what? You know, just to be that upfront felt like what the Republican Party has turned into. I was just so shocked by it. Anyway, the bottom line is I had to cut a half hour of the movie. No longer a 70 millimeter, no more intermission and no more roadshow. And we ended up opening at about 600 theaters. And this was a time when a major studio picture opened in 2000 theaters. Luckily, white people and black people and Chinese and Japanese people and Mexican, everybody, the movie was very successful. Um, but I had a terrible time <laughs> in, in the, after it was finished dealing with the press and uh, got a couple of okay reviews, but basically it was shit on. And, and I just thought, I'm not making another picture for Universal, yada, 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 yada. So I thought, I know Ned would hate the script to American Werewolf in London. So I offered that as my next film that I owed them. And he hated it and said no. <laughs> and then I learned, okay, now I got to go get it made. Why is that? Well, because you offered it to Ned, that's your next picture. You must make at least an effort to finance it or you still owe them a picture. So I went everywhere in town. Uh, I remember uh, Don Simpson at Paramount said yes. And then Barry Diller read it and he reversed it. He said, no. <laughs> um, and I went, we went everywhere. And we were asking for a $10 million negative pickup, and which is still the best way to make movies. I don't know if anyone's doing it anymore, certainly not the studios. But we went into Polygram. Polygram was a Dutch company that in their Mostly wisdom- a record company. Yeah. Record company and a broadcaster in Holland and uh, owned this movie company. And they- had uh, hired, um, it's so unbelievable to me to this day, but uh, John Peters and Peter Goober to run their American company. So George and I go in to see them. They had an off offices on Sunset Plaza. And the first thing we realized was they haven't read the script. <laughs> Clearly, because they're talking about it. They have no idea what they're talking about. And the second thing was that they just wanted Lawrence Olivier had just been in Dracula for John Adam. John, John Adam. John Badham. He was Van Helsing to Franklin Jelly's Dracula. And so they wanted Lawrence Olivier to be the doctor in Werewolf. And I said, well, I mean, he'll cost more than, you know, I don't understand. In any case, the end result of the meeting was Peter asked, do you have room in your $10 million for a $250,000 executive producer fee? 
So George said, well, who would be the executive producer? <laughs> and Peter said, well, we will, John and I. And even at the table, I thought, that's illegal. They're the CEO of the company. What the hell is going on? Anyway, we immediately said yes, and they said deal. <laughs> so you made the movie you wanted to make with anybody not, not without anybody interfering. Oh, no, it was negative pickup. They had to take what I gave them. It was, it turned out to be the easiest movie production-wise I've ever been involved with because George and I signed the checks. I mean, we're responsible for the money because negative pickup works with their promise that they will pay you this much money when you hand them a finished film. At that time, you know, in 35 millimeter, in color, you know, all the requirements in English, no more than an R rating, you know, representing the screenplay. They had all these things that are standard. And then you go to a bank and borrow the money to make the movie. Now, if you saw the documentary about Terry Gilliam's ill-fated Don Quixote movie, you can see Film Finances, which was the company everyone used, we went to them for our insurance, just like Terry did. And on, in his case, they came in and took his picture over. Um, in our case, nothing went wrong and we were able to make the movie. And Joe, I'll tell you, when, when you're the company, it was, John, may I have a Chapman crane for one day? <laughs> Why, yes, you may, John. Thank you, John. <laughs> you're welcome. And then you signed the, we literally signed the checks, you know. So it was the easiest, literally the easiest movie we, I was ever involved in. Uh, well, Joe, I mean, with The Howling and An American Werewolf. In I'm Holland, sorry, the oh, one. Go ahead, I'm sorry. The greatest irony of all was while we were in post-production in London, finishing, it was a British film. So we're in London finishing the movie, I get a call from Ned Tannen. <laughs> Hi, Ned. What's up? John, I just wanted to tell you, we just made a deal with Polygram, and uh, your picture is now a universal picture. <laughs> and it was like a long way oh. around. <laughs> <laughs> well, both of these movies, An American Werewolf in London and The Howling, are genuinely, they take their horror seriously. But they're also both really funny. Joe, I know that that's also a part of your personality. Your sense of humor is difficult to hide, even when you're doing hard-hitting stuff, whether it's, you know, the Masters of Horror episodes you did or, or the Second Civil War. Um, but uh, tell me a little bit about that walking the tightrope between taking the, the scares seriously and still having a good time with it. Well, you know, the, 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 the whole concept of, you know, werewolves and vampires is, are basically absurd. And if you don't sort of walk into that absurdity and acknowledge it, audiences tend to feel superior to it. Uh, I can't tell you how many movies I had seen where people were just laughing at it because it, they thought it was silly, you know, and they were asked to take it seriously. But and so you, you had to you had to let them know that you're that you're in on the joke, they're in on the joke. And it's not a joke if you do it seriously. So uh, I, I too have been, you know, uh, had the same reaction uh, to my work as John had, which is like, was this supposed to be a comedy or is it supposed to be a horror picture? I mean, that was the, 
first thing that the president of the company, Bob Ramey, said after the first day's dailies. He said, is this a comedy or a horror picture? And I said, <laughs> well, it's both. And, uh, and they, you know, once you're shooting, most of the time they don't know enough to be able to tell you how to stop doing it. They, they, the, the, the ball is rolling down the hill and they don't want to get in the way of it because it costs money. Uh, but in this case, Afco Embassy, which was a step up from New World, which is Roger Corman's company, um, in terms of it was still non-union and it was still exploitation pictures and it was still for the same market, but it was a little bit classier. And it was because Joe Levine had started it, you know, with pictures like the, you know, the Graduate and, some, and, and, and he, he, he'd worked his way up from Hercules movies and Godzilla movies into the sort of the firmament of making big star movies. And so there was a certain cachet to working uh, at Afghan Embassy, and as, as as Mick can you know attest to, because he was there uh, in the publicity department when I was making this picture, uh, uh-huh. and he he knew all the you know the peccadillos of the various people involved, and uh, they had recently had a lot of success with Prom Night, uh, and had sort of embarked on a sort of a horror movie kind of program. Uh, which included uh, David Cronenberg's Scanners and John Carpenter's Escape from New York, and uh, you know they were they were getting into the, uh, Phantasm. They were getting into the genre weeds, uh, and when I was approached about doing um, The Howling, uh, I was not the first director on the picture. Um, I was doing I was I was in the in the throes of, of losing a project called Jaws Three People Zero at Universal with the beloved Ned Tennant, who I have just as many interesting <laughs> stories about as John does. Uh, but in any case, this was obviously going to be a doomed project, and I was looking for a way out of it. And my friend Mike Fennell, who was working uh, at AFCO, said, you know, there's this, hard, this werewolf picture here, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to lose its director, and you, you want to do a werewolf picture. And I thought, well, who doesn't want to do a werewolf picture? I mean, I, you know, I, this is very early in my career, and I didn't know how many pictures I was ever going to get to do. But certainly, I would jump at the chance of doing a werewolf picture. But neither uh, neither Joe, Joe nor I knew that there were other werewolf movies being made. No, that was <laughs> it was sort of like when Splash came out and everybody was making mermaid movies. I mean, there, there's this sort of zeitgeist thing that goes on, and, and people make movies that are in the same category, but they kind of are unaware of the fact that other people are making them. And then all of a sudden, they either cancel some of them, like in the Outbreak kind of movies, where they canceled the Hot Zone because there was already Outbreak. Hot Zone was a much better project, and I think it would have been a much better movie. But, you know, it's like, how many of these things can we have in the marketplace and, and, and get away with it? But in this case, none of these people were, knew much about each other, and the pictures were all made the same year. The, the Howling was made earlier than American Werewolf because we um, just got, we got a head start, and the picture was finished in 1980, but it wasn't released until 1981. Uh, and the other connection was Rick Baker worked on both pictures because I had asked Rick to work on the movie, and... Uh, John found out and said, well, you can't, he said to Rick, you can't do his picture. You're supposed to do my picture, which I, has been gestating low these many years. And, well, and Rick, you always Rick, talked Rick, about doing. Yeah, he admitted, <laughs> Rick said, you told me this was going to be your next picture after Schlock. That was, <laughs> but I was so worried because Rick and I, he had developed all these. Techniques. Techniques for the change metamorphosis that were pretty radical at the time. And. I remember saying, you didn't show them like the change heads, did you? That we've been talking about for 10 years. And he goes, well. 
you motherfucker. Well, so, he didn't he didn't know if he was ever going to get to use this stuff if you were never going to make your movie. So he finally had an opportunity. You did fine. He left you with Rob Bottin. He did. And uh, everything worked out great on both sides. But, you know, if it wasn't for Rick's seed work, uh, you know, we wouldn't have been able to do the things that we did. And then, of course, he had a lot more time and money to, to make John's picture than he would have had to do our picture. So I think he was very happy in the end. Um, but as, as as far as the werewolfery goes, we didn't. I, I, we were concerned that werewolves were getting to be a little old hat since the previous werewolf pictures hadn't done so well, uh, and that that mostly they were sort of a staple of the late late show, and people thought of them as kind of you know the villagers running around in the moors, and uh, and we wanted to uh, avoid looking old fashioned. So it was a decision made early that that we would not let people know it was a werewolf movie until well into the movie and the ads didn't have any werewolves in them uh, yeah were. that was a, a very specific choice in the marketing department when i was there it was it's a scary movie but there's no way we want to let you know that this is a, a wolfman movie no and it was a, so they made it look like a slasher movie because those were the my bloody valentine was coming out at the same time these were the kind of movies that were, were very popular and so there was really no way to tell i think maybe in the trailer if you saw the trailer you could sort of tell there were yeah. werewolves in it but for the most part we we just sold it as a horror film um and it was and it was it, it was a very low budget picture and we had to go back to them for a little bit more money uh when we kind of ran out of money for special effects but um in the end they were they were happy with it and it came out and it, it did pretty well it didn't it obviously didn't have the kind of advertising support that American I, werewolf did because that's a big studio I have to interject because Joe, my favorite Joe story about the howling concerns the metamorphosis. Tell them when they saw the dailies, they saw the first cut. I was there. <laughs> well, well, yeah, but your audience wasn't. No. Well, the the, the audience, the, 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 we didn't show them the whole movie. We just showed them the transformation scene. And so they immediately went crazy and they showed it to the exhibitors. And they said, this is what we're going to sell you. And the exhibitor said, great, we love it. We'll, we'll book it. And so they came back and they said, don't cut anything. You can't change it. it. It has to be just like what we showed the exhibitors. And so as a result, the work is very good in, in that scene, in the movie, but it's too long. You know, we, we, had a, we had a bunch of kids who were auditioning for a commercial where we were cutting it. And uh, we, 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 saw, we saw them going by and we said, oh, let's, let's show them the, the werewolf transformation scene and see what they think because they're kids, you know. And so we showed it to them on the movieola, and they were duly impressed. And then at a certain point, one kid says, why don't she run away? <laughs> and I, I said, because, because she's too scared. <laughs> she's too scared to run away. And it's because we have to get to this piece and this piece and this piece, all of which <laughs> Afco says have to be in the movie. So as a result, it's probably the most overlong scene in the whole picture. But on the other hand, it was a talking point and obviously it was part of the reason why it was successful. What? Well, this was, uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, John. Now, what's the movie where the boy turns into a cicada or something? The Beast. Oh, The Beast Within. That's the one with, where oh, they took, yeah, the they took, they took our, that. they took these techniques and they, they went one better because there are a lot of, uh, you know, uh, a lot of, um, giant condom like things that bladders. are used yeah, in these blow things. up bladders blow yeah. up bladders and so that there's a scene in the beast within where the monster literally his face blows up like a, a, a balloon and he looks like charlie brown <laughs> and, and that wasn't supposed to be in it they did it and blew it up as a joke and kept it really 
Yeah, it wasn't supposed to go to just a, an oval or circular head, but it, they just blew it up more than they were going to. And it was, oh, let's keep that. That's it was a bad, that was a bad decision. Yeah, that was a bad, <laughs> yeah, really bad decision. <laughs> but that, but that you guys, this is the longest, I think. But you guys were at the forefront of this, the change o heads. I mean, Dick Smith had done stuff with bladders uh, in The Exorcist. But the change heads were really kind of a Rick Baker thing and then passed on to Rob Bottin. And Rick, I know, was attached to American Werewolf for what was it, 10 years, John, before, oh. even longer, uh, before um, he agreed to be a consultant on The Howling, right, Joe? Yeah, well, he was actually Rick's, um, I, I, I would say, protege. Oh, no. And I had yeah. worked with him, I'd worked with him before on, uh, on, on Piranha. He was quite young. On the fog. Yeah. Rob, and he did the fog Rob with John Carpenter. Rob Bottin ran away from home and lived in Rick Baker's garage when he was a teenager. And Rick really was his mentor and like, kind of like took care of him. And yeah. it turns out that Rob is brilliant. I mean, you know, he did the John Carpenter's The Thing. Which yep. I, Amazing stuff. And, I, re I remember Cisco and Ebert did a special on slasher movies and they included the howling because nobody knew what it was. And Avco Embassy sent me out there with clips from the howling to let them know that it wasn't a slasher and that it was a special thing. And uh, Ebert was very welcoming and Cisco was very cold, but Joe, didn't they have reverse opinions? Like uh, when they did review it, I think, Ebert was the one who championed it and Siskel not so much, or uh, no, vice versa. I honestly don't remember what what they ever said about any movie. I mean, the, the reason people watched them was because of the dynamic, you know, it was it was like one guy doesn't like the other guy and they have differing opinions. They work for different newspapers. They don't even sit in the same row, they, you know, <laughs> uh, and yet they have become um, uh, essential to each other because they are they are the team. It's like a, it's like a, a comedy team that hates each other, like Martin and Lewis and Avon Costello in, the, in their later years. And, and so these guys are they're tethered together and they know that if you there's a lot of really funny um, clips of them doing promos and stuff and being really catty getting uh, with, nasty with yeah. each other yeah um but they uh, but they did they changed the face of, of film criticism and they I'll rescued never, a lot of movies i'll yeah. never give the, forgive them for thumbs up thumbs down yeah, yeah that, two was, thumbs up, two thumbs that was pretty grim but that's one of the reasons they were so successful do you know both of those guys three with roger ebert and two with gene siskel neither of whom were very kind to my films except Roger liked uh, the Blues Brothers, but both those guys offered me screenplays they'd written. <laughs> and, I, and I remember thinking, I don't think this is ethical, is it? <laughs> think so. Not. You were you were sloppy seconds for Russ Meyer. <laughs> that that would be. I won't go into where the image that suddenly popped in my head. <laughs> Well, what were the werewolf movies that uh, that inspired both of you guys? Did you did you screen the older films? I know I remember John when you screened the Oliver Reed uh, werewolf movie uh, before you shot an American Werewolf. 
Oh, I didn't know that. I, I we didn't we didn't have to screen these movies. They're, they're, they're running in our heads over and over and over. I mean, we 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 lapped these things up. They were they were part of our our DNA. So you didn't have to like run back and say, now, "How did how did Jack Pierce do that last nose transformation?" It, that's not the way it worked. It was, no, but it was, Kurt Siodmax, Kurt Siodmax, screenplay for The Wolfman really did set up so many of the tropes and the. His major contribution was the werewolf as victim. You know, almost all monsters, almost all of them are victims. And the Frankenstein monster is a victim. I mean, they're, they're all, the, the creature from the Black Lagoon is a victim. Dracula is not a victim. Dracula, no, he's satanic. He's evil. Um, is the mummy a victim? Yeah, I think. Yeah, sure. Okay. But in any case, even Freddy Krueger's a victim. He got burned up. Well, wasn't he a pedophile murderer or something? Well, he was, but he was slaughtered first. And he's getting even. I guess. Uh, I guess you're right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, Next year, we're saying Matt Gates is a victim. Well, oh God, no. <laughs> he's a victim of an extremely low IQ. <laughs> but anyway. He made the werewolf a victim. I mean, Lon Chaney, Del Toro told me that Chaney's the greatest sufferer in movies because it's always, <laughs> what did I do last night? I didn't. <laughs> and he also, Kurt Siodmak, is the one who made a real delineation between the wolf monster, the werewolf, or, um, and Lon Chaney, you know, uh, Larry Talbot. Larry Talbot, in Jekyll and Hyde, Mr. Hyde represents all the repressed crap of Dr. Jekyll. You know, it's like, sort of like the evil self. And it's all it's like, it, where, but in The Wolfman, he becomes something else. He becomes this wolf that goes around killing people. And he has no, no primal, yeah. Yeah, and it's it's an interesting thing. He He... It, he really did a lot of interesting things. And if you saw, you know, that I, I was the voiceover, the on, the on camera narrator, but I didn't write it. David Skull made a, a documentary on the Wolfman and werewolves for, I think, an early DVD of an American werewolf. And I think, I think you can still get it on some re release of something. But it's excellent. I mean, that's all David Skull, who really writes books you should read. But he, it's excellent about Kurt Siodmak. And it has an interview, an on-camera interview that Skull did with Kurt Siodmak. And he says many interesting things about the star. I mean, really interesting things. It's, it's, uh, he really has the most influence when it comes to werewolves. Although he did get the bit about uh, killing the thing that he, the werewolf kills the thing it most loves from the werewolf of London, which was the prior universal werewolf picture. Right. That's 1935. That was kind of the precursor to all of that's, the. That's the one where Jack universal. Pierce wanted to use the same kind of makeup that he used later. But we Henry developed Hall, that, that makeup for Henry Hall. But Henry Hall was a you know stage actor and he, he basically said, well, you can't tell who I am in this makeup. I mean, any, you know, you've got to modify it so that I can act through it. And so he came up with something I think that was pretty good, but, uh, but he, it was originally meant to be a lot hairier. 
than it is. Well, that, that's why Lugosi turned down the Frankenstein monster. Yeah. He said, you won't recognize me. And then did it later. Well, and he, and he never, didn't recognize me. <laughs> <laughs> right. True enough. Well, let's talk about the technology of transformations because both of your movies were at the forefront of that technology. This was all brand new. I know, John, you and Rick started developing it, but it really happened kind of at the same time. Maybe Joe's was a couple of months earlier because of the green light coming earlier. But but John, tell me about what those <laughs> sets were, were like uh, with well, Rick. You know, it's just that Rick is a very clever guy and a great talent and a, an artist. And he would think hard about how to accomplish something. And, you know, we talked about what is the moment in the transformation from a human into a something lupine you know that well it's the skull i think the skull and the spine i mean what happens to your skull and early on we talked about the moment when the skull actually stretches and changes um i will i've told this story too many times so i'll cut it way short but i went to school with mark and john whitney whose father were, was john whitney and john whitney was one of the great pioneers of what's now called computer-generated animation, CG. Um, he was a fine artist whose patron, his atelier, was financed by the Department of Defense because so much of his artwork was then adapted. Uh, like, for instance, what we now know is the flight control, you know, training thing. Mm -hmm. Now, that was a... A flight then, simulator, yeah. A flight simulator. That was came out of what John Whitney did as an experiential work of art, and they saw the potential there. But anyway, I asked John in 1971, when I was, you know, same year I made Schluck, I asked Mr. Whitney, I should say, because he's long passed away, but about, was that possible? Could you like Rick sculpt four different stages of the metamorphosis and a computer. Do, do you remember when a, ABC was the first time the ABC logo that we all saw CG? The slit it, scan, yeah. No, be, well, it, it went, it was ABC and it went, doo -doo 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 -doo, like that, it went fine. <laughs> it was wow. And uh, then split scan and stuff, but he, I, he, I just understood basically what it was. And I asked him if he could generate by the parts in between. It's called morphing now. You know, it's, uh, in fact, years later, many years later, he told me you'd need much more computing power. But yes, it will happen, he said. And many years later, when I did... Uh, Black, oh, and black and white yes with michael jackson i thought well it's been many years so i went to john whitney jr who made the first cg movie the last starfighter um long before ilm and uh and i went to john and i i explained to him and he said oh sure and they did it on laptop computers <laughs> i was so astounded and uh there's that sequence when all the people are singing and their faces are morphing. And that was done by, that's exactly kind of the idea I had for werewolf. Although truthfully, I think that now you could do it and do it wonderfully and it would be invisible. 
and just combine makeup effects with CG. It would be... And that's become the norm these days. I mean, we, we use the same company, PDI, that you use for black and white when we did the morphing in Sleepwalkers. Uh-huh. And, uh, but now it's very common. You look at the Fear Street movies on Netflix. Oh, you, can the, buy, you can buy that program for your laptop. Yeah, yeah. And you can do transformations. So, Joe, what about your experience with it? You were also, I mean, the howling came out first. And... You know, you were doing these things with Rob, but stylistically, they're very different. Like, John, you were very bold to do a transformation in full daylight. And Joe's is much more shadowy and more, uh, more. Our intentions were different. I mean, it's different. It's that's why that's why I'm always I'm always amused when people are like comparing. It's like, well, which one of these is better? You know, and the fact is, well, neither one's better, but they well, both. They're, have they're, they're, they're very different approaches to to the, they happen to be about the same subject, but that's it. You know, they're not they're they're, they're they have different intentions. They have different uh, the the level of, of humor to drama is different, uh, and certainly the way they look is different. So I I just think of them as always thought of them as as, as two different movies, much as I do. Uh, the difference between Wolfen and Full Moon High and all the, those are all individual movies that have individual strengths and weaknesses. No, I agree. That's, that's correct. <laughs> I mean, there's also, a, you know, one of the things is that again, taking the victim thing, the curse, the disease analogy, David in Werewolf does not want to turn into a werewolf. That's, you know, that's what, that's the bad stuff. The character, what's his name, Eddie? The character, Eddie, Eddie Quist. Quist. Yeah, they Eddie like Quist. they like being werewolves. Yeah, they that by the way, the traditional werewolf, witches could always command wolves. Dracula in the book can transform himself into a wolf at will, and you, it's the big bad wolf. And usually, werewolves are just evil and can turn into wolves or not, and. Eddie, Eddie was certainly not a, a victim of werewolfery. He he liked it. No, that's the, the whole point of the picture was there's a, a, a doctor who's like a self-help guy and a, sort of an est character who was, was the things were very popular at that time, uh, who's trying to get them to repress themselves so that they can, you know, join society and not, not uh, give in to their bestial cravings and therefore you know, be ostracized, but we, we can fit in, you know, we can, we can, we can enjoy this, this wonderful, uh, you know, economy and life that everybody's getting without having to go out and like, you know, tear people's throats out and that will, that'll be good for everybody. Well, it, it was well motivated, but unfortunately nobody bought it. <laughs> so as a result, you know, uh, John Carradine says to the doctor at the end, he says, you can't tame what's meant to be wild. It ain't natural. And that's sort of the point. Well, in, in The Howling, it, the movie itself went through as big a transformation as the makeup effects did, in that it started out as a supermarket paperback by Gary Brandner, and it really became something quite different than what that book was. Tell me about the process of, of where you took it and why. Well, the book was, uh, it was, it was a bus read book. It's a, it's a good read, good bus read because you you read it and it's a page turner and you don't think about it. When you actually have to when you, when you have to take a book and analyze it and try to make it into something that people can you know turn into some sort of drama, you suddenly realize that there are a lot of uh, uh, 
a lot of aspects of the book that let's say didn't get a lot of thought. And, uh, you know, you can't have a town that's all boarded up, that's, you know, inhabited by werewolves, but it's on the main highway. Yeah. And, and, you know, it, 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 there were just so many things that didn't make sense in the book, if you really thought about it. And there was a prior uh, script before I got there that was a, an attempt to, to make uh, that book into a script and it didn't work. Uh, I hired a friend of mine named Terry Winkless. Uh, we tried to adapt the book and make it better. We didn't, we, we still couldn't lick it. And so I went back to John Sales who had rewritten Piranha, which had the same problem when I started. Uh, and he came up, up with this whole idea of the, of the, the self-help group and the, oh. the, uh, the Est stuff and all of that modern stuff. Because we, the, the other thing, the other charge was to try to make it as contemporary a movie as possible and not, 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 not connected with the old world movies that were expected from that subject. Uh, and so uh, we basically threw out everything in the book except the main character and the fact that uh, she uh, has to go and uh, recuperate from what in the book is a rape. Um, and, uh, and, and so he, um, I, think, I think he did a brilliant job of it. Yeah, well, I saw, I went to Las Vegas with you and Mike Finnell for the first um, screening, the, a sneak preview. And it was one of the most phenomenal screenings I've ever been to. It was packed, standing room only, literally standing room, screams, laughs, everything you wanted and more so. And I watched your faces, yours and Mike's, and that seemed like one hell of a night for you guys. Well, you know, you, you, you do kind of make these things in a vacuum. And sometimes the most terrifying experience you can have making a horror movie is running it for people you know like the, the first preview because i think that's true of any movie actually. it's that's true and especially if you've had any contention which we which we hadn't had but if there if, if i've done movies where there's a lot of contention with the studio about what should be in the movie and what shouldn't be in the movie and so you're sitting there and if somebody gets up to go to the bathroom during something that they said was they, this is we why don't you cut this out and somebody goes to the bathroom and goes, see gotta cut it out guy left you know, uh, and so you just sit there sweating the whole screening because you just hope, what can I get this by them? Will they go for this? Am I going to get to save this? Am I going to keep that? Uh, later, when you get into the rarefied position of having a final cut, then it's a little different. But when you're, you know, at the behest of the studios, you know, when they come up to you and say, see, they didn't like it. Now, what are you going to do? That's that's when it's when you got trouble. Uh, luckily, that wasn't a problem on that movie. Yeah, the worst part is when they when they have you fill out cards, because if they ask you to be a critic, you're going to be a critic. But, John, my uh, my first date with Cynthia was the cast and crew screening of an American werewolf at the Hitchcock Theater. <clears throat> and it also, <laughs> even though that was an inside screening and not for a public, it kicked ass as well. Tell me what that feeling is when you finish your movie and you're showing it to your friends and your peers and, and the studio and all of that. And, and it, it just left the place in an uproar. I remember, I think Joe, you were there, John Carpenter was there and Deborah Hill and, and Rick Baker and you know all these people. And it was, it was a party in the Hitchcock Theater. No, I don't even remember that screening. Only, really? That must have been the one where Harrison Ford came up to me afterward and said, John, that's the weirdest fucking movie I've ever seen. <laughs> and he left. And I thought, 
is that good? <laughs> you know, I just didn't know what to think of it. Now, no, what you know, about- it, at screenings like that, that's when people come up to you and say, you did it again. Yeah. Or they say, nice color. Oh, God. <laughs> Very I well love- shot. I love that dress the girl wore. <laughs> no, that I'll tell you. Seriously, my- that's, a, that's a terrible thing to do if you go to a screening of your, with your friends and you don't like the movie uh, because what, what are you going to do? What are you going to say? And that's when all these. What's wrong with a little white lie? You know, it's what's wrong with saying I really loved it. You know what? The problem is if they are your friend, you can see right through them. (laughs) The trick is to try to get to see the movie in rough cut. So then you can if you have an issue with the movie, you think there's something wrong. They should cut something out. They did this. They did. You could say whatever you want because they can fix it. But when the picture's finished and you get invited to the premiere, if you don't like it, you're just going to have to make believe you do. Yes, it's yeah. it's I have to say that the thing about screenings, comedy and horror are very similar in many ways. And I think the way they're the closest together is they both want to create. It's a physical reaction to what you're seeing in, I guess, in a tragedy, you want them to cry, I guess. But in comedy and horror, it's either they laughed or they didn't, or they were scared or they weren't. You know, it's pretty clear sitting in the theater what's working and what's not working. But that's because they're both audience, they're audience reaction genres, and that's why they work so much better in a group than yes. they are when you watch them at home. Well, when you're in a theater with other people, humor and fear are contagious. I mean, I'll never forget seeing The Exorcist in Westwood at the National. I stood in line with my friends. I think that's the last movie I stood in line that long, like for like hours. And then we went in and the movie had been out like a week or two weeks. And it was a sensation and papers were full of people vomiting and fainting and stuff. And we all go into theater. It was a a packed 1100 seat house. And I'll, it was electric. And when the, the lights went down and the curtains opened, the whole theater went, whoa. I mean, <laughs> everybody was so scared before it started. That was probably the, the most spectacular audience reaction I ever saw. I mean, people were screaming and it was, it was very exciting. That's because yeah, it's, one of, the, that it's one of the most manipulative movies ever made. Well, listen, <laughs> I still think the Pope should knight Bill Friedkin. You know, I mean, <laughs> talk about suspension of disbelief. I don't believe in Satan or the devil, you know, or Jesus for that matter. And it's, or God, you know, I'm an stoned atheist. And yet, during the film, <laughs> I remember when Max von Sydow showed up, I thought, oh, thank God. (laughs) (laughs) And the power of Christ compels you. I mean, I thought, man, this is a recruiting film for the church. Although (laughs) I still think that Satan is the best excuse in history. I mean, you know, the devil made me do it. (laughs) It wasn't me. Joe, what was the best experience at a screening of one of your movies that you've ever had? 
was it the howling or was it well i'm trying to think was it was it the was it the was it the screening of the howling where harlan ellison sat in the back and yelled back at the screen through the whole movie uh, yeah. probably not that one um <laughs> I, uh, I do remember seeing it in New York uh, at, at these Lowe's theaters. There was Broadway, one, one, one on top of the other. And uh, they were slightly staggered. And uh, I, I, there was the scene where the werewolf pulls the, uh, the um, file out of uh, the, the girl's hand. And it, he just appears. It's, it was a big scare, big, big scream. And I thought, hmm. And so I went upstairs where it was a little bit behind, or a little bit ahead, and I, and I, and I, and I exactly the same reaction and uh, I, the, I i encountered that on gremlins as well once in the same way that you that if, if you stand in the booth and you look down at the screen you could actually see a wave like a like a, a green wave of people reacting and it's almost always from the front to the back and it's 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 a, it's a remarkable thing to watch and it's even more remarkable to think that you caused it Wow. And what about you, John? What's the best movie experience you've had With of, one one of, of one of your films? Oh, gosh. I've had good experiences and bad experiences. Um, <laughs> I'm only talking I, good. Yeah. Probably, well, probably because it was so unexpected, was uh, first we have to explain what a, a major studio preview was. The, the old good way they used to preview pictures is they take the film out of town, could be Pasadena or San Diego, but usually out of state. And they would just have it play with some movie that's out. So if, uh, I don't know, the odd couple is playing at a movie theater and the marquee says major studio preview, 8.30. Well, then the audience knows that they'll see two movies for the price of one. And that it'll be a brand new movie that nobody's seen. That's all they know. So you have a totally different audience there than you do if it's an industry audience or a friend's audience or, you know. Um, so this virgin audience that has seen no publicity, no advertising, the movie starts and they either respond favorably or they don't. And I had the same, you know, the, the American werewolf story about we, everything was in Britain. That's a British film. So we made it in England and they arranged two sneak previews, one in Chicago and one in Syosset, New York. Uh, the UA theater in Syosset used to be the largest grossing theater in the U.S., and all of their weekend business was all teenagers on Long Island. And so Chicago, we, we arrive to discover that we're in, oh shit, what's it called? The neighborhood that Hillary Clinton's from, Hillary Rodham's from, or-, or um, You got me. Oh, John Hughes's neighborhood. It's, it's where ordinary people takes place evansville or something it's it's a it's like waspy? beverly hills what waspy yes extremely old money and <laughs> and fancy um and so we're in this theater playing with i don't know you know playing with uh some really white bread 
kind of boring movie. And this audience knows nothing about werewolf. Now, now werewolf's no big deal. But at that time, it was exceptionally graphically violent in a way that was not that usual. There's a lot of blood and gore. Um, and it played, and the movie, The Packed House, average age of the audience, 45. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm with the Universal people and John and Peter and the movie starts and the audience is enjoying it. And there are big laughs where the boys are walking in the, in the moors and everything's fine. And then comes the scary part where they're being stalked. And about 15 or 20 people get up and leave. The women, women say, I can't watch this. It's too weird, too scary. And. I thought, uh-oh. And then comes the first wolf attack, which again is quite violent. And Jack is killed. Another 50 to 75 people get up and leave. <laughs> and I'm thinking, uh-oh. Then he wakes up in the hospital. And there's a lot of talking in the theater now. <laughs> I don't know what the fuck this movie is. I, I didn't expect, I don't know, you know. And, uh, Jack shows up with his face torn off. 150 people get up, walk out of the theater, outraged. By the time the movie's finished, there's maybe in a 400 seat house, maybe 70 people left who liked it, who liked it a lot. And boy, Universal. And Bali, they were just insane. Well, obviously, we have to do reshoots. You have to take it, completely restructure the structure. To, and, you know, and I'm like, we have a preview tomorrow. Go fuck yourselves. And <laughs> so we go to New York to Syosset. And I, the movie was some silly teen tits and ass kind of comedy or something. You know, Malibu Beach. Oops, I don't know what it was called. And... The audience was completely under 30. And so I said, I have to speak before the film. And I got in front of the theater. It took me a while to get them quiet. <laughs> and finally, I said, hi, my name's John Landis. Who cares? You know? <laughs> and I said, uh, I made Animal House. Yeah! You know, they, they love that. So I went, okay, great. Well, this movie you're going to see is my first movie after Blues Brothers. Blues Brothers, yay! So everything's great. But I then I said, but it's different. Silence. I said, it's very scary. After a few beats. Yay! <laughs> and it got graphic nudity. Yay! And it's very violent. Yay! You know? So I said, okay, well, I don't say you weren't warned. And as I'm leaving, they're yelling toga and stuff. So movie starts and it plays like I'm paying them to enjoy it. You know, <laughs> it play it paid fantastic, except the ending left them kind of, they were very taken aback that he dies. The only difference was the audience was prepared to see what they were going to see. And that was the difference. That was it. Yeah. So that was it. That was, but that was terrible. But that's, I'll say it on the radio. 
Sean Daniel was sent as a representative of Universal. He was then a vice president of production or something. And so it's John Peters, Peter Goober, um, John, uh, me, George, and Malcolm, uh, the two editors. The and editor. Producer. And, ooh, that's great. Just a bit, being given my birthday presents. And, uh, so the the uh, very tense, this was at the um, Sherry Netherlands in New York, very tense. And John Peters is berserk, screaming and yelling about, you fucked us. That movie's nothing like the script, you know, and he's going on and on and on. And finally, Sean, really in a moment of rare courage, especially for a studio executive, he said, John, would you please put a leash on your monkey? <laughs> Peter leaps across the room to kill Sean and Malcolm and George and I grab, we're holding him down there screaming and yelling. And it was very exciting. It was just insane. <laughs> and you know, and when they, when they left, you know, I, I looked at Sean and I said, you know, Sean, I have final cut. The movie, you have to release what I give you. Why are you guys going through this? <laughs> and he said, you're right. So they canceled all the previews they fired joe farrell you know that what was what was his company called uh yeah uh, uh, uh i forget but that was the primary surveying company yeah, yeah they, they you know that whoever they could really hurt your picture with those yeah. forms you fill out you know yeah you it's one thing to get an audience's response when you're in the room it's another thing to ask them for it and then they change their minds yeah you know and they have a, and they have a, a guy who conducts the uh, the conversation after the movie and they say things like how many of you think that the hero should have had a dog <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so so joe how much did you think about um the metaphorical and maybe the Freudian aspects of the lycanthropy. Uh, were you just making a monster movie or uh, both of you make movies that have multiple levels that whether they're comedies or horror films or combination of the both, there's also always social commentary in it. But this in specific, the lycanthrope is so metaphorical on so many levels. Did that? Well, it's in, it's inherent in the in the subject. I mean, you know, what is I was a teenage werewolf except a, a movie about a kid who discovers he's growing hair in places he didn't used to have hair. <laughs> you know, I mean, the, the, they these, always said it's a metaphor for puberty. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it, it, there's a lot of Freudian stuff in in this picture because our one of our lead characters, Patrick McNee, is a you know is a psychiatrist and he's constantly you know making excuses for why these people behave badly and all that um and it and you you can't you can't not you you can't um not pay attention to that stuff when you're making movies about these subjects because they they it comes with the territory and and, and it's it's loaded with that kind of material so you, you it, it's it's best not to ignore it it's best to just sort of dive into it and say well look this is all this is all part of the way that people think about insanity and uh, and religion and you know all the other things that go along with the supernatural so what are your favorite examples of uh werewolf movies that neither of you made 
Well, we all like we all like the Wolfman because it's a great movie, and it it really is actually a, a, it's the most Val Luton esque of the Universal Pictures, which are you know we're, we're, the the reason that Luton made those films was because I think basically when when the Wolfman came out and made a lot of money, uh, rather surprisingly I think to everyone, um, that's when RKO said we need one of those and we're going to do the Cat People, you know, right. and and of course you know Luton's approach to the genre is somewhat different than but but Kurt Siodmak ended up writing for him so I mean these 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 things are are, are, are fairly allied what year um, is the Wolfman 1941 41 yeah 41 right. and it was released just before or after Pearl Harbor well that's one of the most interesting things about the Wolfman is that it's in England and in 1940 and 1941 they were fighting the Nazis there was a war going on and not only is there no mention of it, it's like, what? where the hell are we? You know, they have those oak trees, those California oaks, and they have, it's just the weirdest movie. They're like. But that's the whole, the whole series of films that followed it. You know, the Frankenstein movies with all the added monsters and stuff, it all take place during the war with no mention of the war. It's it's just it's it's in Vesaria, wherever that Vesaria. is. Sort of on the yeah. outskirts of places where people are fighting, but we can't hear them. Well, but the Wolf <laughs> Band is England, very specifically England, and and their cars. It's just a very odd. It's uh, a fairy tale. Yeah, 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 very much a fairy tale. But for both of you, with both the Howling and an American Werewolf in London, eroticism is brought into the mix. Well, it was in the Wolfman. I mean, he's not going to shake Evelyn Anker's hand. Yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> how how can you talk about this stuff without being primal? You know, I mean, that's it's all about reproducing, and you know, if you're not killing somebody, you're screwing them. <laughs> and John, what about you? What are what are your favorites other than back to 1941? Is there anything in more recent Well, in years? the modern in the modern age, I guess we both I like Ginger Snaps, the first one. Um I just thought it was a very obvious idea that no one thought of, you know. It struck me as very original and uh and again, it was the one that really used lycanthropy as an adolescence metaphor and with menstrual blood and all that stuff. It um, be company I, of wolves, even more than that. Well, company of wolves, forgive me. I haven't seen it. I only, I saw it once when it came out and I have, I remember liking parts of it and hating parts of it. And I, I just remember the two things I liked the best were Angela Lansbury when she's beheaded <laughs> The head, her head goes flying against the wall and it's made of China. So it shattered, which was quite shocking. There were some really interesting things in that movie. But, but I, the director was very dismissive of any other movies about that same subject, including the ones we made. Well, well his is the most overtly uh, Freudian of the bunch. The Hell no. What are you talking? They're all overtly Freudian. Okay. But I think he actually took... Freudian imagery specifically as the point of the movie it felt he, like he, he was he was very condescending about anybody else who had ever made a picture on that subject interesting well, so like regardless there were some things in it I liked very much but I didn't think it worked as a whole and that's again with the caveat I have when did it come out 
You got that, it. That's when I saw it. Yeah, early 80s. Yeah. <laughs> like you guys, <laughs> but after. <clears throat> yeah. That way, I know there are other werewolf movies I liked, but, you know, I'm old now. <laughs> well, what, one that's not, I don't know if you'd consider it a werewolf movie because she turns into kind of a cat monster. Um, obviously, The Cat People is just a wonderful movie, the first one. Yeah. Wonderful movie. And also... Um, then Paul Schrader tried to bring it up to date with well, the contemporary no, see, that, that, that doesn't technology. That seldom works. But he didn't just bring it up to date. He made it about incest. Right. Malcolm McDowell was her sister, her brother. I mean, it was like, what? No, the, <laughs> other, the other movie that... It's a Japanese movie. I'm trying to think of the title. It's... Uh, Kuroneko? Kuroneko, yeah. where the mother turns into that cat monster. Yeah, that's an amazing film. That's what a really movie. scary movie. Yeah, out in the fields of grass, yeah. Well, now you're thinking of Oniba. Uh, Onibaba, but... Onibaba. Uh, that's the mask, right? Kuroneko yeah. also has oh, the, the forests and the grasses and things. Well, yeah. What I remember in Kuroneko, when, when they're walking, the samurai is being led by the beautiful girl in the woods and they come to a puddle and she kind of kind of like glides over it she kind of like floats over it and you <laughs> see the samurai going wait a minute <laughs> and also that wonderfully bizarre thing when their mother and the girl are feeding the samurai dinner in the house but you see outside the soji screen is open that the house is moving. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like really scary. But I, but when she is a monster, when she turns to that cat creature and he's in the, the temple in the shrine and outside she's saying, let me in. It's your mother. Let me in. Please, <laughs> please. And the, I saw it at the LA County Museum of Art. At the big theater. Every, demolished. The now demolished. The whole audience is going, don't let her in. Don't let her in. That was a scary movie. <laughs> well, here we are 40 years after your movies came out. How does it feel to be discussing them as contemporary movies? Because they are still in the consciousness of a very appreciative audience. Joe, what, what does that feel? Uh, there's, there's no accounting for taste. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I am happy to say, however, that uh, since there's never been a DCP on The Howling, uh, that Studio Canal, who is cur its current owner after a litany of uh, a list of five, six, seven, eight, nine different people that used to own it, uh, has finally made a 4K restoration and they are going oh, wow. to uh, release it in theaters, amazingly enough uh it's sometime this year the way it should be seen john what about you 40 years after the fact what's that feel like um it's surreal actually i mean i remember when i saw singing in the rain in a theater for the first time it was like 1964 it was at uh remember that the vanguard way down almost oh yeah down wilshire down yeah yeah they used to, it was an art house but they showed singing in the rain and I rode my bike. It was like, it was a the vagabond. You're thinking of the vagabond. The vagabond. The vagabond. Absolutely yeah. right. Off. Anyway, 
Good thing Joe's here. <laughs> anyway, we I saw Singing in the Rain again instead of on TV. I mean, and I remember that's one of those movies where I saw it and went, oh, my God, it's in color. <laughs> I had only seen it on television. People forget, um, you know, that when we were growing up, it was it was unusual for somebody to have a color TV. Oh, yeah. That didn't kick in until the mid-60s with Bonanza. That's one of the reasons they started shooting shows in color was because they wanted to sell color TVs. Yep, RCA. Again. But in <laughs> any case, David Sarnoff, changing our lives. Um, but seeing it in color and just, it's such a genuinely great film. And it was in a series of movies where people had requested, and I saw it on a double feature. You know what, I was, I was 15, so it's 1964 or five. So I saw Singing in the Rain and Casablanca. And wow. both films are so good. And when I saw them, Casablanca, was made in when 40, 43 43 so 43 to 63 that's only 20 years. 20 years and singing in the rain was made in the 50s so that's less and i thought of them as old old movies and you're talking here we about are 40 years 40, later <laughs> 40 years later i honestly i'm delighted i'm delighted that uh werewolf is well regarded and i'm delighted i keep i get an income from it you know um <laughs> but i have uh, you know joe too we have a bunch of movies like that i mean gremlins yeah but I mean, the only one i don't make any income from is the house well, because I wasn't, I wasn't in the dga <laughs> yeah you weren't in the dga when no, you... it was a non-union movie yeah so it was Warner Brothers? no i have co-embassy have co-embassy i'm talking about the house oh, no. you're talking about the howling what i'm talking about is movies that 40 years later still have a strong presence in the culture. And I think it's because they're good movies. I mean, and it's also due to home video. Home video has saved our asses because a lot of these movies we, would be just as obscure now as when we were growing up, all those 30s movies that we didn't even know existed because they had never been on television. Nonetheless, <laughs> I still think that a great movie or a movie that touches a chord, I mean, Wizard of Oz, people say, what's the best fantasy film ever made? And unequivocally, I think of La Belle Bette, I think of Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, but the truth is it's The Wizard of Oz, which is the most theatrical. I mean, you can see the painted walls. It doesn't matter. The suspension of belief in that movie is profound. And it has to do with the cast and the screenplay and just everything about that movie. It's incredible. And, and the beautiful artifice of it, even the artificiality of it is gorgeous. Have you seen the 3D version of that? No. They restored the negative, And I guess they figured while we're spending money, we'll make it 3D. And it screened for a week. This is recently, I, th I mean, within the last eight, eight or nine years, they... They re-released it and played at Grauman's. And this was after Grauman's became IMAX and stuff. We went to see it. That movie is so, it's, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. It's wow. a great film. And Casablanca, it's 
an incredibly great film. And if it's a great it's film, it's a miracle, right, Jeff? Well, but we're talking about that's it's right. A good sure. picture is a miracle. You make me, I always think of uh, Hollywood in the putties and the riding crop, but then I, it's, this will test your knowledge. I love it when he says, Get back! I told you there aren't any cigarettes. Oh, that's from Amazon Woman on the Moon. Right. Now, but that now was, you're getting into the weeds. But that was one that was one of the funniest things I'd ever see. And it's complete I, ad lib, of course. Well, it was funny. <laughs> anyway, I think if, for one hand, when a movie touches a chord, and I'm very lucky to have been involved with a bunch of those. I mean, Animal House still plays, Blues Brothers still plays, Trading Places still, I mean, you know, a bunch. And and uh, and Joe too. Joe's involved with a bunch of those. And a it's bunch. Yeah. It's a bunch, you know? It's a bunch and and it's amazing to touch not just people you know, but an entire world of cineasts or just movie lovers. Which is why John has been invited to Locarno. Well, Joe and, Joe and I have both experienced the Jerry Lewis effect of being much more appreciated in other countries. <laughs> and my, my wow. one son, I was at Venice or something. I was head of a jury. And... Uh, some wise ass asked me about why do you think they like you more in Europe than they like you in the States? And he was, he meant the critics. And Deborah said, because English here is a second language. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I know that your movies are beloved around the world and especially here. And I really want to thank you for taking the time to celebrate the uh, birthday for the Howling and an American Werewolf in London with us. Well, thank and you for having us. But <laughs> you know what? Joe and I have failed you in that we didn't come up with other werewolf movies. But if we were conscientious... There are no other werewolf movies. Yeah, no, there are. There are <laughs> other good werewolf movies. I know it. There's well, that... we got the two that you made, and that's all that counts right now. Thanks, Mick. Right. Thank you, Thanks, Mick. guys. Appreciate it. Bye. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris on the Dread Podcast Network. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.